So many films and so little time. Might as well get to it. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. It's been a minute, you guys. Um, I know Freddie and I last talked about The Defenders a week or so ago, which was in and of itself a much-delayed episode that we've been meaning to do for a while. And now here I am with what I'm going to call my catch-up episode, uh, hence the title. So it's been about a month or a month and a half, I'd say, maybe, since I've kind of dropped the ball on doing weekly episodes. Maybe, actually, now we're getting probably close to two months. So in that time, mostly throughout September, there were a lot of really high-profile films that I didn't really get a chance to touch base on. So this is my episode where I'm basically just going to discuss the three main films from last month it's in, in the interim since I've had a regular episode. Just kind of review them back to back to back um, really, not fast, but in quick succession to kind of get back up to speed with the films that have been out in the last few weeks. And, uh, and the next episode I will devote uh, I will devote the time specifically to uh, Blade Runner 2049, which I did see and I have thoughts on, obviously, because I have thoughts on everything. I mean, let's, let's break it down. So before we get into that, there's been so much going on in, uh, in my life. Um, obviously, uh, you know, professionally, I've been sort of away from this. I've had a lot of uh, other freelance work kind of on my plate, a big project that I was dealing with with that. And then on a more personal level, you may have heard, you guys probably know that I live in Florida, that there was some hurricane situations occurring, and uh, that, that was fun to deal with. And we lost, Kai and I lost power for a few days, so there was a lot of running around to in-laws' homes and, and uh, trying to take care of our, our infant daughter. And, uh, and then she had a cold afterwards, it was like a stomach issue, so it, it's been a big mess. Needless to say, I'm trying to make a concerted effort to get back on that weekly um, that weekly pace that I was on because I do miss doing this and uh, you know now we're going into a bunch of, of really big holiday season films uh, with November December the last Jedi the Ragnarok Justice League so there's definitely big things that I want to talk about as well as a lot of smaller uh, Oscar fair that is sort of on the horizon um, that I'm really looking forward to seeing so anyway that's all future episodes for this episode we're going to be talking about three films in specific Specifically, we're going to be talking about one that I loved, one that I liked, and one that I'm very mixed on. And if you have any idea what three they are, just by the description of this episode or, or the image that's accompanying it, you probably have a pretty good idea of which one I'm mixed on. So without further ado, let's go into my review first of It. I saw something. There was this... Come with me. You'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. As always with these reviews, we're going to be talking about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and the verdict. So as for it, um, going into this film. As far as the hype, I was 
excited to see this. Uh, I was a fan of the miniseries from 1990 back in the day, although I had heard that it didn't age very well. I'm actually still in the process of rewatching it for the first time in, I don't know, probably a couple decades at least. Um, I loved Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise, and that's basically, I feel like like most people, that's kind of the main thing that I remembered from it. Everything else was sort of blurry, and I was like, oh, John Ritter's there, and Harry Anderson, and all these big TV stars um, at, of the time. But um, I haven't read the book. I, I own a copy of the book that I've been meaning to read for years, and now that I've seen this movie, I probably will get to that. Um, but I, I did have a very well regard for this story, Specifically, I have seen a lot of Stephen King's film adaptations, but some of the main ones, like The Dead Zone and Pet Cemetery, are still on my uh, on my blind spot list that I definitely want to get to. So going into it, I'd seen the trailers and I'd heard that it was you know supposedly really terrifying, and I you know wasn't wasn't too. Uh, I'm not one of these people that's like shied away from it specifically because I have a fear of clowns or anything because I I do enjoy. Uh, this sort of Goonies slash Stand By Me uh, slash Monster Squad vibe of the story, especially, uh, obviously, especially about the little kids facing this uh, supernatural force in the form of Pennywise. So I was very excited to see how that was going to play out on screen. And I'd had heard nothing but rave reviews going into this. So that being said, that was what was in my mind. I had high expectations going into it. And let's get into the story. The story here, of course, is one half of the, what is it, 1,100-page Stephen King novel. Um, This one specifically, this film specifically focuses on the Losers Club when they are children, where the sequel, which has now been announced for September, I don't remember, I think feel like it's September 6th, 2019, will focus on Pennywise's return 27 years later, and the reunion of the Losers Club as they um, as they take him on, you know, realizing that he's back. And uh, I mean, spoilers, <laughs> I guess. If you know that there's a second film coming, it shouldn't be a spoiler that Pennywise comes back. Um, but I was really uh, impressed with this tone. It did feel to me like a film that came right out of the late 80s, which is where, you know, the setting of this was. They updated the setting from the novel and the miniseries for the kids' side of it from the 50s to the 80s, so that, you know, we would move into um, modern time with the 27-year time jump. And I did specifically like the fact that it's been 27 years since they did the miniseries. I thought that was kind of a cool meta-commentary that uh, that makes the whole experience a little more a little more uh, chilling, uh, unintentionally so, I'm, I'm sure. But, um, so the story's pretty straightforward. These kids are all tormented by... Uh, their own personal trauma and kind of come together to face a uh, you know school bully as well as of course Pennywise the clown. What I like about this story so much is the authenticity with uh, the time period and the fact that like best like the best sci-fi fantasy and horror, um, it really focuses on using Pennywise and that demonic force that he is as a sort of metaphor for kids dealing with adolescence and dealing with, you know, uh, an upsetting home life or prejudice in their life or or tragedy in their family. And um, I I think that the subtext there makes the film a lot richer than just, you know, just your average monster movie. Um, I think the direction by Eddie Muschietti, however you say, I'm not exactly sure how, Muschietti, 
is is really top notch. Uh, I was a moderate fan of his previous film Mama. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was an interesting debut. Uh, I had most of my issues with it were were based in the story, not so much the look or the atmosphere. So the fact that the story is already sort of laid out and um, well adapted in this version, I think that his directorial style um, is is I think this film basically proves that he is probably at the top of his game. And now with this, I would put him, I would put him up there, <clears throat> excuse me, I would put him up there with Fetty Alvarez and Jennifer Kent and people, and uh, Robert Eggers, who have come up with some of the most interesting horror films, interesting visually horror, horror films. And the, the, to me, they, they represent sort of the top notch of the like post James Wan uh, era of horror filmmakers. So, um, you know, the story here was definitely a lot, a lot for him to work with. And I think he executed it to a T going to the cast, the cast, when you have a film that's entirely led by children, like this first half of it really is, I think you kind of live or die based on the cast that you have. And I thought that in this particular version, the cast knocked it out of the park. I I was really impressed with this. I wasn't really familiar with um, almost any of these actors. I know that, what is it, Finn, Finn, whatever, I have to find his name, hold on a second. Um, I knew that one of them is from Stranger Things, which I still have not caught up with, um, Finn Wolfhard, there it is. Um, but I, I was only familiar really with Jaden Lieberher, who I saw in Midnight Special, I thought he was really good in that, and I actually knew that he was in this going into it. And then kind of forgot as I was watching the movie. I was like, who the hell is this kid playing Bill? He's great. And like, no wonder because I've seen him in other things and he was great in other films as well. But everyone from Wolfhard to Lieberher to uh, Jeremy Ray Taylor as Ben, um, Jack Dylan Grazer as Eddie, all of them were really great. To me, the standout was probably Sophia Lillis as Bev, who I wasn't really familiar with her at all. Um, I do feel like Chosen Jacobs and Wyatt Olaf are sort of left hanging here. I didn't feel like they had too much to do as Mike and Stan, um, respectively. Uh, as far as Stan, if you know anything about the book, I feel like his his sort of underdevelopment here, I guess, kind of makes sense. Um, but I, I feel that for the most part, with those five characters, the five of the seven that are given more substantive roles, I felt like those child actors did such a phenomenal job and they, they didn't really feel like they were acting. They felt real in the moment, real kids, talking like real kids. Yes, real kids do curse. Um, and, uh, and, and they really sold me on this sort of fantastical concept. Of course, I can't mention the cast without talking about Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise, who brings a real sense of uh, sort of um, menace and darkness to the role that I think is... Very different than what Tim Curry brought to it. Tim Curry's was more um, more playful, more sadistic in some ways, but also less less threatening. I think um, as a kid, I found Tim Curry's version really scary. As an adult, not so much. I find him fun to watch, and he's entertaining as hell. But I, I don't find I don't think he has the the same kind of otherworldly presence that Bill Skarsgård brings to the role. Um, I compare it sort of to um, the Joker, which is another famous killer clown, obviously. Um, Jack Nicholson's performance in Batman 89 
is unforgettable and he's great as that character. He's fun as hell to watch, but he's not really scary. You don't walk out of that movie being like, oh my God, Nicholson was terrifying. He's more just like, ah, this guy's kind of a maniac clown. Okay, whatever. Um, Whereas Heath Ledger was a a little more chilling, a little more visceral um, and a a lot darker in uh, multiple respects. And I feel like Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise really kind of counters Tim Curry's in that very same way. Going into the production, I already mentioned here, I think Muschietti's, um, Muschietti's atmosphere and the, uh, the, the production value in this film is, is incredible. Um, I know it was only made for, I think, like $35 million, and it's made over $500 million worldwide at this point, which is unbelievable. And I, and I, uh, I couldn't... Uh, I didn't see that coming. I knew that the film was going to do well because there's a lot of name recognition with the story, with Stephen King in general. But I had no idea that it was going to do this well. Um, I, in fact, I sort of wondered if The Dark Tower's failure may have sullied the uh, the Stephen King branding in the short term. But uh, I guess I was wrong, and, and I couldn't be happier about that. I feel like um, the film from the direction to the screenplay by uh, Chase Palmer, Kerry Fukunaga, who was going to direct it at one point and dropped out, and Gary Doberman, I thought, really uh, crystallized that story. And in a lot of ways, it's a very simple story about these kids facing this creature. But in a lot of ways, it's more, like I said, it has a lot of subtext and it's rich uh, in multiple ways. And I think that that comes to the surface and elevates this material. The score by Benjamin Walfish is really uh, is really evocative and, and uh, creepy in the best ways, and in that way, really complements the story. It's just it just it feels like one of those films that costs thirty five million, but has it feels like it's expensive studio. It feels like an expensive studio uh, horror film, and when it, in a way, I, I guess it is because it is Warner Brothers. But it's also it, it, thirty five million. The like every sense of that is on screen here. This. Uh, this director is only his second feature-length film, really, I think, and um, and he's already he's already delivered a five hundred million dollar global hit. So, needless to say, I I think that it like looks spectacular and shot really well, and it feels a lot uh, it feels a lot more cinematic, obviously, than the TV miniseries, but like it, it's jarring in a way if you watch the opening sequence in this film with Georgie and the counterpart in the TV version you can really tell just it really highlights how terribly and poorly made the the, the miniseries was and how blandly it was shot versus how how uh, Machete Muschetti, I have to figure that out how he shoots this it elevates even simple things like a little kid running down the street and yeah, the violence in this movie is, is there. Obviously, it's very apparent um, and kind of in your face at times. But um, even that is presented in in such a, in, it's a very artistic, stylistic, stylistic way. So moving into the verdict, in case you can't tell by now, I have very few complaints about this movie. I love this film. I thought it was great. Of the three that I told you I was going to talk about, this is the one that I loved. And uh, I'm looking forward to owning it on Blu-ray and watching it again and introducing it to Kai and uh, checking out the sequel, which I am also really excited to see. Um, Stephen King is kind of experiencing a little bit of a renaissance right now as a brand, and I think this film, which is one of his most popular books and uh, properties in general, is definitely leading the way. So 
I will definitely give this as far as my verdict. 4.5 out of 5. Not necessarily a perfect film, but it's pretty damn close. I found myself really kind of lost in the narrative of it all and uh, rooting for these kids in, in a very palpable way, you know, while I connected to uh, to their, uh, their individual stories as well. I also have to mention the um, sort of school-age bully in this film. I think that that character of Henry Bowers is maybe just as scary, if not more so. Actually, probably more so than Pennywise himself. And um, the actor Nicholas Hamilton, who plays him, uh, um, brought a lot to that character um, and, and grounds the film. And like what I said, it's not just a fantastical story. There are other more grounded elements at play here as well. So that's my review of It. Moving into the following week, that came out September 8th, September uh, 15th, I believe, we got Mother, the new film from Darren Aronofsky, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. So let's get into our review of Mother. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? doing in their luggage wow man i don't even know where to go with this one so in case you probably i mean this is the one of the three that i'm very mixed on going into darren aronofsky's mother as far as the hype is concerned i was a big fan of black swan um, i was a big fan of the wrestler i've been very mixed to negative on noah the fountain um and then i and i appreciated requiem for a dream Though it's not a film I have any interest in seeing a second time just because it, it is an experience. And I kind of feel the same about Mother. So go, going into this one, I uh, I was, you know, I've seen all of his previous films, Aronofsky, and I appreciated his talent. I did think that he, I, I knew that he had a tendency to maybe overdo his points and beat them in the head a little bit too much. Um, and... So, that being said, I was still curious to see the film. I knew that it, it was polarizing, and I, you know, just wanted to kind of experience it for myself. And the fact that the trailer is very vague, that the film was supposedly open to all of these interpretations and all of that, just really um, intrigued me. So I was definitely interested in seeing it and and kind of forming my own opinion. Um, as far as the story, without getting into spoilers, there's a lot that I'm not going to address. The film just basically centers on a, uh, a writer, a poet, actually, played by Javier Bardem, and his young wife, played by Jennifer Lawrence. And they live in this idyllic house that Lawrence has been working really hard to restore after a fire destroyed everything. And they begin to get a series of uninvited guests that played by Ed Harris, Michelle Pfeiffer, and it really just kind of spirals out from there. That's pretty much all that the trailer tells you. And I think if you're going if anyone is going to enjoy this movie, it is going to be because you don't know that much about it going in. Um, plot wise, that's pretty much all I knew. 
uh, I heard some of the interpretation that it's, oh, it's about the artist struggle or it's some kind of a biblical allegory. And there's a lot, I, I mean, I lean towards, I know, I know that the latter is there, but I tend to, uh, um, I tend to connect more to the former being a writer, being, you know, a creative person, um, and knowing some of Darren Aronofsky's history and his, uh, you know, his personal life, I think you can watch this and pretty easily sort of read into what this film, what he's trying to get across with this film, what he's expressing and what he's trying to get off his chest. Does the story work for me? Nah, that's a gray area. That's an, a question that like depends on how I feel about it in the moment. Going into the cast, Javier Bardem is outstanding in this, of course. He's, he's kind of good in everything. Jennifer Lawrence really holds it down. Uh, even though I feel like she, this character is very passive and it did feel jarring to me that she's such a usually such an active character, whether she's Mystique or Katniss Everdeen or, you know, Silver Linings Playbook. Um, I know she's, her character's not Silver Linings Playbook. I'm just blanking on her character's name in that from, uh, at the moment. Um, she's usually such a passionate, active, uh, character. It kind of seems how she is in real life. And in this film, she's very subservient. She's very kind of laid back and, and doting wife type. And, uh, that was very jarring for me. I think that might be what Aronofsky is going for with her performance, with casting her in this. But I, I think that she does a really good job here for the most part. It's not so much any of the performances that uh, that affect my enjoyment of the film. It's not so much the directorial style. Aronofsky, Aronofsky's material always tends to be very surreal, very uh, sort of heightened and um, visceral. And I use that with it, but I think it's even more visceral with this film. Um, and uh, intense and I, I think that the performances that are all in here from the you know Bardem and Lawrence as well as Pfeiffer and Harris I think they all really support Aronofsky's vision I think he has a very clear um, clear message he's trying to get across and a very clear idea for how he wants to do that and the actors all serve their roles really well but ultimately, they're not really... Even Lawrence is not really the star of this film. The star of this film is the... Not even... It's not even really a story. It's it's so... It, it, it's the metaphor of it all. It's, it's the theme and the point of it is the star of the film. And if you connect to that, or if you find that um, engaging and, um, you know, thought-provoking in any way you're going to enjoy the film on some level. That being said, moving into the production, uh, I did say that the film is well-directed, the visuals are all strong, the score, blah, 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 all that stuff, it's well shot. What my issue is with the film is that I do feel like, and I've heard other critics say this as well, I do feel like he goes too far with what he's trying to get across. I do feel like there's a very specific moment towards the end, and anyone that's seen this film knows exactly what I'm talking about, where... I was very turned off and hoping they weren't going to take it there, but kind of figuring they were probably going to take it there. And um, it just seemed to me felt gratuitous and borderline exploitative. And there's a lot of things in this film that, you know, they've been the first half sort of wondering, okay, this is kind of an, like an intriguing kind of, you know, uh, bottled um, thriller, very Hitchcock style. 
and then the second half it goes off the rails and um you know what's happening in this house starts to make less and less sense until until it really comes to a head and uh and then you know i could see a lot of people walking out of this feeling totally unfulfilled and wondering what the what the fuck did i just watch you know demanding their money back that kind of thing because this is not a film that is made for general audiences um i think none of aronofsky's films really are but black swan which i loved like i said is very much it's very much more straight it's very more much more straightforward than this it's um it's also i think more accessible than this film i think it's more mainstream in a lot of ways and i think this is probably one of Aronofsky's most polarizing films. I mean, if you read reviews, people either love this thing or they hate it. And I think, I don't know where it is quite on Rotten Tomatoes, but it tends to get a very, very, you know, divisive response from people, which is understandable. If you're an average moviegoer, I would not recommend bothering with this because it's probably not for you. If you've never heard of Aronofsky and you're not really... um, you know, you don't want something that challenges you that will will go out of its way to um, to either enrage or or get a reaction out of you. Then um, this is not a film for you. I'm sixty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I wanted to check. So I guess critics, for the most part, are borderline. Most critics are are enjoying it and appreciating it on some level, but even those that like the film, I've seen a lot of reviews saying, yeah, good film, you know, I like what he's going for, and not, no, don't want to watch it again anymore. It's, it's very Requiem for a Dream in that way. I've seen Black Swan a few times, so I don't feel that way about, about you know, that film, which is his biggest success to date as well. But, um, yeah, so Mother was an interesting film to watch, and it gave me a int- really great story to tell Kai when I came back, like, I just saw the most fucked up movie. <laughs> Sit down, let me tell you a story. And uh, immediately I was like, immediately after I told her that, I, I said, uh, is this an, you know, a film you, sounds like a film you're interested in seeing? She's like, yeah, no, not not at all. Not, not based on that. Because she's not, you know, it's not one of those films that you watch to be entertained. It's one of those films you watch to maybe talk about, maybe study, maybe, you know, uh, think about uh, and try and dissect. And uh, in, in some ways, Blade Runner, which I'll talk about on the next episode of this podcast, is kind of a similar, has a similar uh, intent. Blade Runner is not a film that is necessarily entertaining to watch. Blade Runner is a film that you want to watch and then read a paper about it or write a paper about it and be like, well, I think the replicants represent this. Or I think that this is commenting on this part of our society. And, and I think that the filmmaker was you know, trying to send this specific type of message. And Mother is very much, as people have been saying, an allegorical film in that way. Going into the verdict, never want to see this film again. <laughs> um, did I enjoy watching it? Um, so parts of it I found intriguing. And then afterwards, the, the message that I took away from it, like I said, the biblical stuff was fine. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person, so that's you know that is what it is. That is the interpretation that the filmmaker is choosing to focus on. I tend to think the uh, the you know struggling artist part of it is more intriguing to me, and it paints a very sort of negative picture of that. 
uh, of that, you know, perspective on things. Um, but I can see people loving this movie. I can see people hating this movie. For me, I kind of fall right in the middle because I recognize the artistry in what he's trying to do. I recognize how, uh, how well the film is directed and how, how, um, you know, in a way, in a way brilliant it is. I just don't think it really resonated with me in that way as that it does for some people. So for me, I'm kind of stuck between like a two and a half and a three out of five, just because I did get such a mixed reaction to it. Um, for me, you need to have, you need to basically not outwardly turn me off and have at least some kind of entertainment value in order to, in order for me to appreciate the, uh, the deeper levels of what your film is trying to do. And for me, this film, like I said, drastically turned me off in its final, what, 15 minutes or whatever, and um, wasn't a particularly entertaining film to watch other than just trying to figure out what the fuck is happening. It's not a film that for me I, have, I really want to revisit, even though there are, you know, there are other things you can glean from the story if you look deeper, I'm sure. It's just not really the kind of film that I particularly want to look deeper into. So um, those are my thoughts on Mother. And that came out September 15th, as we're kind of tracing our way through the month. And the following week, we found a very different film on the horizon on September 22nd. So let's get into our review of Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Today marks the beginning of a new age. Wait, I'm going to show you. Say goodbye to the Kingsman. Kind of got a bit of a save the world situation here. Welcome to Statesman. As your American cousins, we'll be working side by side. Let's get started. It's kind of a relief after two quasi-horror films. I wouldn't really consider Mother a horror film, more of a psychological thriller slash cinematic mindfuck. But uh, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. So going into this one... As far as the hype is concerned, I loved the first Kingsman. I know that there is a lot of controversy involving a certain uh, anal sex joke towards the end. And uh, I know I understand the perspective on that. I kind of read it more the way that the filmmaker intended, um, the way Matthew Vaughn has explained it. But, you know, that controversy aside, um, I was really excited to see this. And I was hoping that it could provide a worthy follow-up to Kingsman the Secret Service. The fact that we had director Matthew Vaughn coming back after he passed on the sequels to X-Men First Class, or got pushed out of it, depending what reports you believe, uh, by Brian Singer's return, as well as Kick-Ass 2, which he stepped away from, and if that was the script he was working with, well done, Mr. Vaughn. Um, the fact that he sort of decided to own this as his franchise um, I think made me even more excited because I did like Stardust. I did like X-Men, like I just mentioned, First Class, as well as um, Kick-Ass. And uh, he has a really solid track record for me. I think the only movie has I haven't seen is Layer Cake, which I have picked up on DVD a million years ago and still have sitting somewhere in my house. Um, so I was excited to see this. I thought that the this franchise offers sort of a... Uh, uh, wacky, like anything goes, bl like blatantly shameless R-rated spectacle, a take on, uh, you know, James Bond franchise, 
And I think this film takes that and, uh, and you know, sort of runs with it in, in many ways. Going into the story here, so this finds, I mean, this is not a spoiler because it's in the trailers, um, finds the Kingsman pretty much destroyed with the exception of Eggsy and Merlin and, you know, uh, I won't get into spoilers on, on who all survives and all that, but um, they have to reach out to the Statesman, which is basically the American equivalent of the Kingsman. And there's a bunch of famous faces that show up here to uh, to fill out that lineup. All the while, the the two organizations kind of band together to take down the person responsible for the Kingsman's destruction, a drug-dealing kingpin known as Poppy, played by Julianne Moore. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of subplots going on in this film, unfortunately, that I think do bog it down. There's some stuff going on with the statesmen themselves. There's there's a an entire like sort of um, relationship that Eggsy, played by Taron Egerton, finds himself in. There is you know the return of a couple of film uh, characters from the first film, one of which is featured very heavily in all the marketing, and I kind of wish that he wasn't. Um, there is uh, there is another sort of B-level love story. There are other characters that they try to develop sort of half-heartedly, and, and uh, it doesn't entirely work. But from a story perspective, this is not a film you go in expecting a, a groundbreaking story. It's the execution that really, I think, makes it work. And the fact that Poppy's plan involves, uh, you know, her own drug supply and... Uh, I won't get into the details of it, but it, it it does raise some sort of political issues in a way that the first film also does with uh, technology, with Samuel L. Jackson and his sort of uh, you know taking advantage of cell phones and and SIM cards and and uh, using them to control people and that kind of thing. I think there is sort of a social commentary happening in this film that you don't normally get from movies like this, and I think that's kind of interesting. The movie doesn't really concern itself with elaborating much on that it's just kind of set dressing but it is it is nice that it's there um and it adds a little more texture to the film itself as far as the cast is concerned egerton is again really fun in this movie i think he's got a certain kind of charm uh kai and i both love the first movie and i think you know his performance as a sort of street kid turned super suave spy is a big part of what makes this franchise work um Mark Strong, of course, is coming back as Merlin. I already mentioned Merlin. And I think he's sort of an uh, underrated actor. I thought he was great in all the, uh, all the Matthew Vaughn movies that he's appeared in. He was in, uh, of course, the first Kingsman, then also in Kick-Ass, where I thought he was great there. I actually thought he was probably the only really, or at least the best part of the terrible Green Lantern movie that came out a few years ago, a Sinestro. I kind of wanted to see him come back to play Sinestro or maybe be cast as Lex Luthor instead of Jesse Eisenberg because nobody saw that casting coming. But he's great here as well. Some of these statesman people, I feel like, are the ones that are underused. Um, Channing Tatum is barely in this movie. Jeff Bridges is barely in this movie. Halle Berry is barely in this movie. Um, I think that, you know, for some of that, it was scheduling was the issue. You know, that you have all these, these A-list actors and they're only in a couple scenes here and there. Um, you know, uh, Matthew Vaughn has said that in a third film, you know, if they do get a third film, I don't know, I know this film is sort of struggling a little more at the box office than the first one did. I think that if that was to happen, I think we would, we would see a lot more of the Statesman. Pedro Pascal 
as Whiskey is really the only one of these characters that really gets a substantive role and, and at least even a, a modicum of development. And uh, he was fun to watch. Uh, the whole thing with the whip and uh, the, you know, the, um, all the cowboy stuff going on with the statesmen and, and their, uh, the fact that their cover, spoilers, not really, is sort of a, is a liquor industry, just like, you know, for Kingsman, it's, it's their tailor shop. Um, I think all of the, the, all of the exposition, not exposition, but all of the background stuff on the statesman is, is fun. It just, I feel like this film takes on way too much. I feel like they had introduced statesmen here, maybe the small way, and then had them be a major part of the third one. Maybe that would have worked, but there's a lot of, this one has a lot of work to do and a lot of story to get through. And even though at like two hours and 20 minutes, I still feel like some of it feels rushed and uh, overdone. Like I think you could have taken for, I'm just going to say it, that character that comes back, the one that you all know that comes back that I'm trying not to mention because I'm trying to preserve a surprise that the marketing team at uh, Fox apparently didn't want to preserve. Um, I think that he should have not been brought back in this movie. If you want to like a, Pirates of the Caribbean style thing with the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, the, the first three, and uh, and have him sort of come back at the end of the second film and then pay, play a big role in the third film or something. Um, I think having him come back and the way that that affects the storyline and how it sort of takes over the movie for large chunks of it, I think it is too much. Um, and it deals with some really, really overdone cliches that uh, I'm really kind of sick of dealing with in comic book movies as far as the production is concerned I think the there's a real sense of style and sort of bonkers uh, tone that Matthew Vaughn and his team bring to these movies which makes them a lot of fun to watch I do think that his sort of uh, his style of shooting action scenes, like in the church scene in the first film, he sort of zooms the camera from one spot to the next, creating kind of an illusion of a one shot, uh, a one, yeah, one shot action sequence uh, by cutting things together in, in a certain way using, you know, digital effects and stuff. He does that several times in this movie. And I remember even saying to Kai after we saw this, th that was too much. It got sort of tiresome after a while and uh, kind of exhausting to watch and you should not be feeling like the action scenes and your ridiculous comic book spy movie are tiring to watch it shouldn't feel repetitive but it sort of did come to that point there are also parts in this film that are so so intended for shock value and just to 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 mess with the audience um the beginning scene with uh you know with poppy's test for her henchmen uh, comes to mind that famous, again, another controversial sort of sex joke or a scene or whatever um, in this film, which again, I, I also didn't, I mean, I could see how these movies are not the most flattering towards women. There's a lot of arguments for that um, about how, you know, in the first film, the character of Roxy is really underused. And then, you know, the, of course, the princess in the, in the first one. And I feel like there, there is definitely some truth to that. These are not, these films are not doing their their hardest job of representing women, and I think Halle Berry's character is could have been a step in that direction, 
if it had not been bogged down by the 14 other subplots that the film had to deal with. But, you know, I think in the in that scene that's happening, in this movie, the controversial scene, again, I'm trying to stay away from details, it, it, it actually, to me, felt that one shot was a little... What are we doing here? This is kind of ridiculous. Or, or a little too much. Um, but the, the conversation that precedes that moment, I think, was a, when in a way had a lot of heart to it. And I think was sort of the film's way of saying, yeah, we have all this crazy shit going on, but we're trying to underline that with like a, a real sort of emotional uh, grasp to it. You know, whether that works or not, uh, you know, I, I understand it doesn't 100% even work for me, but the intentionality is there to try and create something that's not just, um, not just, you know, your James Bond traveling around the world, you know, having sex with women and all over the place and and doing as he pleases with them, very, very objectifying to women were those films, which I guess were kind of used to it in those movies more, and Kingsman's a newer franchise, so these kind of bear the brunt of that criticism a lot more. I guess that must be what it is, because there are things happening in Spectre and Skyfall that I didn't hear this much hubbub about, but as soon as Kingsman comes out and tries to sort of comment on that, people seem really offended, and I don't quite understand how you can be offended by one thing and not by the other. That being said, the production, you know, the the his, Vaughn's way of shooting action was kind of ridiculous and overdone at times. Um, oh, I, I going back to the performances for a second. I forgot to pinpoint Julianne Moore is definitely the VIP of this movie for me. I thought she was uh, a really strong villain. I actually would love to see more of her here. She's sort of isolated in a way, both, uh, you know, physically from the rest of the film and also sort of narratively until kind of the third act. And I would have loved to have seen a little more involvement for her as far as, you know, um, Elton John, who's in this movie. And it's not a spoiler because he's, his name's on the poster. I feel like that gag, they beat it over the head and we got that same joke about five to seven times. And I think maybe three to five times would have been plenty. So uh, I think that this movie is not, you know, the Kingsman movies are never subtle. But some of the, some of the gags in the script and some of the stylistic moves that made the first movie so charming are are way overbearing. The story feels too overloaded with uh, multiple plot threads. And, you know, I, I think that it is pretty much subpar to the first movie on just about every level. That being said, going into the verdict, I did still think Kingsman the Golden Circle was a lot of fun. Um, for what it is. It was much more, to me, much more disposable than the first movie. But the performances from Julian Moore and Taron Egerton specifically, the uh, the world building here, what they're trying to establish with the statesman, and some of the some of the cool action beats, as well as some of the um, some of the gags, EVS, even the Elton John ones, I thought was really strong and uh, you know made for a fun time at the movies. Is it one of those that's going to end up in my top 10 of the year? Hell no. It's not on my top 10 of the year now. So it's not even close to there. It's not even close to being the sort of uh, release that I thought the first one was, where it really tra- almost transcended the genre in a way. And, um, you know, kind of elevated comic book and spy movies kind of in one fell swoop to something sort of outrageous and uh, that felt fresh. This movie didn't have any of that novelty going for it, which is, you know, I think is sort of par for the course with sequels in general. But I, I think The Golden Circle could have been a much better movie had they decided to 
break its main, you know, some of its subplots up into, you know, the second and third film. I think maybe Matthew Vaughn was not really wanting to, and the studio not really wanting to count on the fact that there would be a third film. And the way things are going, it, there might not be. Um, I still recommend Kingsman the Golden Circle, especially for fans of the uh, Kingsman the Secret Service, because both films are a lot, uh, are, are fun to watch and entertaining um, for a certain segment of the audience that can deal with the kind of shock value and and in your facedness as I, if I as I make up a word on the spot that has kind of become their trademark. So I'm still going to give Kingsman the Golden Circle a 3.5 out of 5. Um, I could almost give it a 3, but it's like eh, there was enough stuff in there and I had enough uh, residual love from the first one that I'm willing to bump it to a 3.5. So those are my thoughts on It, Mother, and Kingsman the Golden Circle. Obviously, I, I would highly recommend It the most of these three. That one is probably guaranteed to fit on my top 10 of the year. Uh, Mother, less so, unless you're into that kind of thing, or you're, unless you're a cinephile, I would probably just skip Mother. And Kingsman the Golden Circle is much more, is, is definitely the most uh, broad appeal of the three. So um, if you like the first one, check it out. If you didn't like the first one, don't bother, because it's like the first one, only not as strong in any way. So those are my thoughts on those three films. Now that I'm finally starting to catch up here, a little bit longer than usual episode as far as my solo ones go on the uh, on the Crooked Table podcast. Uh, I'm just glad that I finally got the chance to talk about all of those because I've been wanting to for a while. And there's probably much more I could say about all three, especially Mother, just because there's a lot to dissect. But I wanted to do kind of a spoiler-free just overview. I mean, like, these are the films I saw. These are this is what I thought of them. So... That, that that's finally now out there into uh, into the world. So that's all I have for now. You can rate and review the Crooked Table podcast on iTunes if you'd be so kind. We're also on Stitcher. You can follow me, Robert Yanis Jr., uh, at Crooked Table on Twitter. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. On the next episode, as I mentioned a couple times, we're going to talk Blade Runner 2049. I'm really excited to talk about that with you guys. Uh, I know that also review, also that review will be coming a little bit later. I'm going to try and get it up by Monday at the latest and maybe even tie in um, some Last Jedi trailer response or reaction. And uh, who knows, I might end up seeing something else in the meantime, like The Foreigner, so I can maybe tie that into that episode as well. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.